0: kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the
1: sea. Acts chapter 16, 18 through 27. Acts chapter 16, 18 through 27. We'll begin reading in verse 16 to give us some context. Now it happened as they went to prayer that a slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Verse 18. And this she did for many days, But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed, and the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself." In our last study, Paul and company in the city of Philippi were brought, through either the providence of God or Satan or both, into an altercation with the pagan culture of the land. As they journeyed to the oratory to teach the God-fearers who gathered there for prayer, a young girl met them along the way. She was a demon-possessed slave girl. Whatever the demon was doing to her, it allowed her masters to present her as a fortune-teller, and Luke says they had made a great profit for a long time from this enterprise. When she encountered the Christians, much like the demon-possessed people who encountered Christ himself, she seems to have been drawn to them, and she began to exclaim that they were the servants of the Most High God and proclaimers of the way of salvation. As we noted in a previous study, this announcement may have been subtly poisoned with pagan ideology, but even if it was true, like Jesus himself, his ministers did not accept the endorsement of evil spirits on their ministry. Yet Luke says that this was not just a one-time occurrence. Rather verse 18 continues and she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. There are some oddities here that bear consideration. It was one of the sign gifts given to the apostles to cast out demons, mark sixteen seventeen. Philip was not an apostle, merely an evangelist, but in Acts chapter eight he did cast out unclean spirits, so we might regard this power as included in the general gift of working miracles that was given to believers through the earlier churches through the laying on of the apostles' hands, First Corinthians twelve four 4-11. If it is correct to look at demon possession as an extraordinary work of evil spirits, then it was most likely a concession of power granted to them by God, with a limitation on the time and space where it could take place, so that through the exorcism of the demons the power of Christ over the infernal spiritual world might be clearly manifest during those foundational eras of Christian history. But if demon possession occurred before the ministry of Christ and of the apostles, and if it occurs still, the authority that they and those supernaturally empowered by them manifest over the demons was extraordinary and marvelous to all who saw it, And it did certainly demonstrate that Christ is supreme over the most potent examples of evil spiritual power. That is the meaningful point that the Bible writers seem interested in establishing. Paul made a regular habit of delivering demon-possessed people when he found them, so that his name was renowned and feared among them, according to Acts 19, 13-15. Yet here we find an apparent reticence or apprehension on Paul's part to cast out this demon. It was evidently not difficult for him to do it. The next verse says that after a simple command in Jesus' name, the Spirit came out that very hour, or more properly, that very moment, as in the New American Standard Version. Yet Luke says that Paul allowed the girl to continue following them And making her claims for many days, and when he finally resolved the issue, it was because he was greatly annoyed. While it is true that the phrase can carry the idea of grief and compassion, most translators do not think that that's the meaning here. There was some irritation and frustration on the part of Paul. I do not think that it was any kind of callousness against the young girl or her situation. Most likely McGarvey has the best idea, when he roots the anxiety in the issues relating to slavery as it was practiced at that time. Luke is very explicit that this was a slave girl, and the specific way in which she brought her master's much profit was directly connected to her demon-possessed condition. To cast out the demon would radically change her condition and remove the very thing that made her valuable to thus depreciate the worth of another man's property would most certainly make Paul an enemy of the girl's masters and perhaps of others in the community, so it seems he tried to avoid it as long as possible. There may be some implication to draw here regarding the apostolic approach to remedying social evils. Very few Bible scholars have ever concluded that human slavery was a good thing. Some forms were perhaps better than others, but it was no part of God's original arrangement of human life in the world, and the principles of Christian ethics inaugurated its abolition by utterly transforming the dynamic between slaves and masters. But the war on slavery was not fought by the Church. It was fought in the Church— In other words, justice flowed to the nations not by the reform of human government and the culture it creates and regulates, but by the spread and increase of the kingdom of God and the transformation of individuals in every nation from unrighteousness to righteousness. Thus Paul did not come to Philippi simply to disturb the master-slave relationships there, but the kingdom of God cannot coexist with the kingdom of darkness, and wherever it goes the world is turned upside down. Paul was in a difficult predicament. To leave the girl in the power of the demon was both contrary to the principles of his apostolic work and counterproductive to his preaching, because the things she was incessantly saying were going to interfere with his influence in the community. But to deliver her was almost certainly to stir up more intense opposition against him. God could work through the second scenario, but his work was mutually exclusive against the first. So the demon was banished. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, here Luke uses his great literary skill, by repeating the same word he previously employed to describe the departure of the demon. When the demon went out, the hope of profit went out with it. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. We need to catch the point that Luke makes right here about the reason the people turned against Paul and Silas. It was not the things they were preaching. It was the work they did— which interfered with their money-making. From the Gospel of Luke and throughout the record of Acts, the peril of loving money and the certainty that such an affection will keep one out of the kingdom of God is a major theme. In fact, the only two major Gentile persecutions we read about in the book of Acts arise from this very source here and again in Acts chapter 19. The masters dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. If you are familiar with the Greco-Roman world, you realize that the marketplace was not merely a place to buy and sell. It was the social and civic center of the community. This one would be like the Roman Forum, since Philippi was a colony. There would have been a place called the judgment seat, where orators delivered speeches and where magistrates conducted trials. First, they brought them before the lower-ranking city officials, and after it was explained what had transpired and what sort of grievances were taking place, verse 20 continues, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Here, Paul and Silas found themselves in a very serious situation. In a Roman colony... These magistrates were the authorities just below the governor or proconsul, and it was their task to ensure that the peace, and thereby the good standing and position of the city, be maintained. To that end, the three accusations brought against them were offensive in an order different than we might expect. First, the accusers identified Paul and Silas as Jews, in contrast to their own identity as Romans. The reality, as we shall soon see, is that both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens themselves. However, their Jewish ethnicity would immediately stir up a prejudice, especially if we are correct in our earlier supposition that the reason there were not many, if any, Jewish men living in this city was that, like Rome, Philippi had expelled the Jews in a pogrom at some relatively recent period. If this was the case, there were probably some strong anti-Semitic sentiments in the community already. Second, although last in order, they bring up the fact that Paul had come into town with a new doctrine, and claiming that it was not lawful for Romans to receive or observe the sort of principles and propositions the Christians promoted. According to most scholars, this whole claim was absurd. There was not, at this point in time, any ban on Jews proselyting Gentiles into their faith, and because no clear break had been established between Christianity and Judaism, the legal protection on the latter would have rightly extended to the former. It might be that they were speaking colloquially, continuing to build on the anti-Jewish feelings that were strong in the town, and simply saying that Paul should not be allowed to turn people to that troublesome and troublemaking faith. What is interesting is that they do not mention the slave girl or the exorcism. Perhaps they knew that if they were honest about the source of their animosity against Paul, it would look worse for them than for him. But in the end, there was another accusation which was offered second and which was sufficiently uh, grievous to justify the harshest reaction in the minds of the local authorities. These men exceedingly trouble our city. This was a major concern. If the leaders of Philippi could not keep peace within their walls, they would lose their colonial status, and the city would likely be destroyed in order to protect the reputation of the empire. Whatever these men had done, and whoever they were, if they threatened that which was the greatest pride of the community, they could not be allowed to escape unpunished. Verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them. Now they view Paul and Silas as enemies of the city rather than merely agitators of a few citizens. And the magistrates tore off their clothes. Literally, they would have stripped them completely naked as a public spectacle and commanded them to be beaten with rods. The rods used in this kind of punishment were something like the handle of a broomstick and thick as a billy club. And when they had laid many stripes on them, Jewish law had a strict limitation on how many times a man could be beaten to prevent abuse, but these were not Jews, as they had previously informed, and evidently what they did to Paul and Silas was so severe that the two could not remember the number of blows to report to Luke. Almost certainly they were left with broken ribs and bruised and lacerated backs they threw them into prison. Twice Luke will describe them as being thrown to highlight the intensity of their mistreatment, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, and having received such a charge, he put them, or literally he threw them, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The inner prison was the dungeon. Roman-style prisons were designed with three sections called the communiora, the interiora, and the tullianium. The first section gave prisoners fresh air and light and greater mobility. The second meant more intense security and was closed off by a strong iron gate. And the third, innermost section, the section where Paul and Silas were placed, was dark, dank, cold, and stagnant. They were secured in wooden stocks, two heavy beams, clamped around their stretched legs to prevent any significant movement, and likely positioning them face down on a floor that was almost certainly covered with the urine or excrement of the dungeon's previous tenants. The Apostle Paul had suffered in his service for Christ before, even to the point of nearly dying, but this was severe. Later he would write about it in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, and say that he and Silas had been treated outrageously, and likely this was the first time Silas had ever endured this kind of pain and humiliation in his life. The reward of service to Jesus Christ, the reward of answering the call to help the nations. It does not seem right. It does not seem fair. This might be the time to cancel the mission trip and go home, if not to renounce Christ altogether. But, verse 25 says, at midnight. I want to draw an inference here. It's not necessary, but I think it is probable. I suggest this would have been between 9 to 15 hours after their arrest, based on the fact that the incident with the girl took place when they were on their way to prayer and the times of day when the Jews customarily prayed would have been about 9 to 15 hours earlier. Furthermore, it is very likely that these things had taken place on the Sabbath day because that is when the people would gather at the oratory for prayer. So this was most likely midnight on the evening of the Sabbath. What a time to be cast into prison for the service of Jesus. A few years earlier, at the same time and on the same day, The body of Jesus himself was in a tomb, having been beaten and bloodied to death. But by the light of morning he was alive again, and walking freely in the earth. I wonder if Paul and Silas thought about that. I wonder if they discussed that with each other as they found themselves in this predicament on this occasion. Perhaps they did, because at midnight, rather than bemoaning their circumstances or renouncing Christ, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It might have been a lament psalm they were singing, calling attention to the inappropriateness of their condition, and expressing confidence in God that he was not the sort to abandon his people to their enemies, Jesus sang and prayed this way when he suffered, and there's certainly nothing wrong with his people doing the same. But it might have also been simple songs of praise and adoration. After all, the Bible says that when the early Christians suffered, they thanked God that they had been found worthy to undergo that sort of experience for Jesus' name and honor. Whatever it was, it impressed the other prisoners, and the language of Luke indicates that they were awestruck and in rapt attention. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. The flow of the narrative, and especially the word suddenly, highlights that this was not a natural earthquake, but an act of God. And the quake would serve two important purposes. First, it twisted the very foundations of the building so that all the gates and doors busted open from their fastened position. Of course, the loosing of the chains was not an expected result, but would support the supernatural source of the whole incident. But the second purpose of the earthquake was to manifest the presence of God with his people, like a similar shaking of a house where the disciples prayed together after the first attack against them in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, this was apparently the same jailer who had thrown them into the dungeon and fastened them into the stocks, awaking from sleep, he had evidently not heard the songs and prayers, we'll have more to say about that later, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. At this suspenseful moment, we will leave until our next study. But even in the midst of all this excitement, there is something calmingly familiar about these scenes. No matter where God's people find themselves, no matter what kind of suffering they endure, or who opposes them, or why they are opposed, there is a consistent refrain to the Christian life. God is present. And no matter how dark the night or deep the dungeon, deliverance will come. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, TulsaChurchOfChrist.com Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week.
0: From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing their arms of rebellion cast down. At last, every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, O tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.